What I'm going to do in the next uh, minutes, a little more than a few minutes, I'm going to give you a doctrine of Scripture, which uh, is what I live by, what I give to pastors, and what every congregation needs to believe about the Bible. And, um, and I would say this, and this is a little dramatic, but I say it's only a matter of life and death, that's all, uh, what you believe about the Word of God. And so, um, we're going to move through this. There's going to be a lot, a flood of uh, information come your way and thoughts, some, very, some things I think you'll find very interesting, but I think are good for the life of the church and it, It'll be a great help to your pastor. It'll be a great help to your elders if you understand uh, what's at the base of the biblical ministry that goes on here at this church. And so I think it'll be helpful. And you remember when I uh, spoke last night, I talked about how uh, during those 27 years of college church, I spent about 20 hours a week, which was then in excess, I think, of about 20... 25,000 hours of sermon preparation at 20 hours a week. Man, that has something to do with what you believe about the Bible, or you wouldn't sit in an office like that, like I did, uh, over the Word of God. And so, this is a very intense personal matter for me. And it's always been a dominating uh, passion with me. I went to Talbot Seminary with John MacArthur. That's where I got my bibliology. Uh, we prayed together early on about ministries together. He used to be one of my youth speakers when I was a youth pastor, if you can imagine such a thing. And uh, in a Hawaiian shirt, by the way. And uh, so I, I, I taught with my Bible in my lap, but always taught the Word of God and when I planted that church in North Orange County, it was, here's the Bible, here's the preacher, here's the people. The Bible was never back here behind me. It was in front of me, you know, as I taught the people. And uh, then all those years at college church. And I, so it's a passionate thing, preaching and preachers, reading about it is a passion of mine, homiletical literature. And that is why... The slide to what I call disexposition is of concern to me. Now, if you look up disexposition in the dictionary, you won't find it. And especially the way I spell it, because the way I spell it is D-Y-S-E-X-P-O-S-I-T-I-O-N. So you get the point of the word. I hope it gets in the dictionary someday. But you have all experienced disexposition as a listener, though you may not have termed it that. You visit a church, unnamed church. The text is announced and read. The text, you know the text. It is so rich and promising. You settle back with your Bible open to, to be fed, only to find that the text is departed from, never to be returned to in the whole sermon. And for me, that disexposition turns to indigestion, Sunday afternoon indigestion, homiletical indigestion. Other times you've experienced gospel disexposition 
where no matter what the text is, wherever the preacher is in the Bible, they all, all the sermons sound the same. You know why? Because like an old rabbi's, the pastor has a bunch of favorite texts that he encrusts whatever he's preaching with and always returns to towards the end of his sermon. So everything sounds the same, whether it's out of Proverbs or out of the Gospels or out of Romans or out of Genesis. And that kind of thing produces a brain death. You can't remember what was preached week after week after week. And the best part of the sermon is when the when the pastor says, let's pray, and closes his Bible. There is also a type of disexposition, which I call seeming exposition. If you want to give it a big word, putative exposition, in which the text is referred to, but there's no rigor. In other words, goes through the text, but there's no rigor engaging the syntax of the words or how it relates to its context and so, it is sort of a pretend exposition that really does not open the Word. It's kind of preaching from the Bible instead of preaching the Bible. And uh, it's sort of like getting Nescafe instead of Starbucks on Sunday morning. And then there is a type of disexposition that invites all kinds of abuses to the text. And uh, one is... I'll just give you a word, D-context, where the Scripture is often wrenched from the uh, context and mistakenly and grievously misapplied like the preacher used Revelation 11.10 as a Christmas text. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another. Well, it neglects to mention that's because of the two prophets that have been tormenting dwell upon the earth have been put to death. You know, have yourself a very Merry Christmas. The wrong text. Um, my, my son, this was not preached, but my son visited, uh, went by a, a, a Christian store. You know, that's supposed to be a bookstore, a Christian store. And out in front of it, at the Christmas text it had on the marquee was, when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. <laughs> well, that's Matthew 2.8, and that's King Herod. Have yourself a very Merry Christmas, folks. <laughs> Bing Crosby singing in the background. I mean, it can go on. A Hallmark greeting, you know, um, the Lord watched between you and me while we're absent from one another. That's between Esau and Jacob, which basically says, you cross this line, you're dead. Well, that's a nice hallmark greeting too. <laughs> Genesis 31:49. Or it can be the kind of thing where the text is preached through a lens, a favorite lens, a psychological lens, a therapeutic lens, a political lens, a materialistic lens, a chauvinistic lens, a social lens, a domestic lens. So say, for example, if it's a political lens, no matter where the preacher is, somehow he always ends up on the flag in America and uh, the loss of our heritage. I can think of a Presbyterian divine now with the Lord who did that on a regular basis. Or if it's, if it's, a, if it's a, a domestic lens, 
the sermon always comes back to family and parenting and marriage because that's how it's seen. And, and there's all kinds of lenses. The, the therapeutic lens is really pernicious because that's the kind of preaching where sin isn't referred to as sin, but it's a disorder or lack of peace or a lack of wholeness or a lack of well-being, and it just perverts things. Uh, We've got to watch that kind of preaching. A third one is where it's moralized. For instance, you take a text like uh, Philippians 3.13, this one thing I do, and you take the outtake of that text and you decide, this one thing I do. That's, that's, that's great for preaching on priorities. And so you list 10 priorities and you say you go to number one, this one thing I do. And you don't go to number two until you've got that done and you're preaching this one thing I do. This one thing I do is ringing off the walls all over the place. The people are getting all worked up on priorities and it's never mentioned forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.13, so the text is moralized and trivialized. Happens all the time in preaching. Or perhaps doctrinalized, where it's organized into an array of proof texts to give doctrinal preferences to the preacher. Or perhaps the preacher preaches from silences, the gaps in God's Word. It's Christmas time, preacher's preaching, He says, now the Bible doesn't tell us how Mary felt about this, but we may be sure that she felt, and then therefore we ought. I have some sympathy about preaching from silences. I mean, when you've preached 30, no, 40 Christmases, and you've preached every text in Scripture, you know, I I would know, I would like to know what the fly saw on the wall at the manger. I even heard of it as a, a scripture, a, a sermon that was preached from the perspective of the lowing oxen, preaching the gaps. I wonder what the bull thought about it, you know. But the most common type of disexposition comes from what I call the homiletics of consensus where the preacher determines his congregation's needs from the pollster's felt needs and then bases his preaching agenda on their findings. Done all over the place. Recommended by certain gurus around the country or use Maslow's hierarchy and preach to felt needs. The problem is, is that people's needs are often far deeper than their felt needs. And you never get there. I, I'm not a great fan of William Williman, who was one time dean of the chapel at Duke University, but he wrote something very interesting in Leadership Magazine called Been There, Preach That, in which he asked rhetorically. Now, I, I would call him a liberal. He said, do you know how disillusioned it has been for me to realize that many of these self-proclaimed biblical preachers now sound more like liberal mainliners than liberal mainliners? At the same time, those of us in the mainline, old line, sidelined, speaking of his denomination, were repenting of our 
psychological pap, these biblical preachers were becoming user-friendly and inclusive, taking their homiletical cues from the felt needs of us boomers and busters rather than the excruciating demands of the Bible. I know why they do this. After all, we mainline liberals played this game before the conservative, evangelical, and reformed and orthodox got there. A few paragraphs later, after warning against allowing the world to set our homiletical agenda, he concludes the section saying, the psychology of the gospel, reducing salvation to self-esteem, sin to maladjustment, church to group therapy, and Jesus to dear Abby is our chief means of perverting the biblical text. So, disexposition is I've, and I've made big uh, overdrawn picture of it. It's not a straw man that I can just casually say, I just put it down, put the torch to, and it's gone because disexposition is taking place all over the country on, in what ostensibly evangelical Bible-believing pulpits where you do not hear the Word of God preached. You maybe hear sermons from the Bible, but you don't hear the Bible preached. You hear sermons about the Bible but not the Bible preached. As I kind of said last night, bits of Bonhoeffer and Bono and uh, Mother Teresa mixed up together. So I want to say, and I just set this up to say, what you, what he, what I, what you believe about Scripture is everything when it comes to preaching. I cannot think of any liberal who does regular biblical exposition. It's only done with those who have the highest view and an errantist view of God's Word. Those who do exposition share Jesus' view of the Word, Matthew 5, 18, that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen while by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's what Jesus believed. Not the smallest part would disappear until it was accomplished. Now, I'm talking to the choir right now. I rather doubt that you're here if you don't have that high view but let me say, a high view, an inerrantist view, while it's essential, is not enough in itself. And here's where we start to cut to the chase. The expositor must wholeheartedly believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. You hear that? Amen. Sufficiency. You need to embrace the grand Old Testament's teachings about the sufficiency of Scripture. Here's the deal. I'm talking about Deuteronomy 31 and 32. Here's what happens. End of Deuteronomy 31, Moses writes a copy of the law, the Torah. He finishes it. He lays it beside the ark. So there it is sitting there, the scrolls of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible by the ark. Then in Deuteronomy 32, he sings the song of Moses, his great song. He sings all the way through the song, and at the end of the song, he ends, and in verses 46 and 47, Moses makes a comment after the song is over. He says, take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, 
so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of the law. And then he says, these are not idle words for you. They are your life. So he says to Israel, the word of God is your very life. And Moses, as the beginning writer of the Old Testament Scriptures, set the standards because that's how they are viewed throughout the Old Covenant as your very life. So you have Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of God ungodly, nor the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. That is the opening psalm for the Psalter. You go to Psalm 19, and he talks about how God reveals his word through the heavens in the first six verses, and then in 7, he talks about how it's more to be desired than gold. You know, it's your very life. And then you go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a 176-verse Hebrew acrostic poem. It means it goes by the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet from Aleph to Tau, basically saying God's Word is everything. It is a love song to God's Word. Psalm 119. That's how it's referred to as your very life. You go to right to the end of the book of Isaiah, the final chapter in Isaiah, and this is one of my very favorite texts. It says in 66, 2, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. In fact, those that don't tremble at the word don't obey his word. It says when they offer sacrifice, if it's a grain offering, it's like offering pig's blood. If it's a sacrifice in the altar, it's like breaking a dog's neck. Now, uh, of course, uh, the expositor is a preacher of the new covenant initiated by Jesus and must model the dependence of the master upon Scripture. Do you know that Jesus Christ's mind compassed the full range of Scripture? Everything. Uh, uh, he's got everything from Adam and Eve to Moses and David to Solomon to Jonah and the whale. Uh, and if you go through uh, his, his uh, synoptics, his illusions are absolutely phenomenal. But the thing about Jesus is not only his knowledge, but Jesus lived in full submission to the Old Testament Scriptures. An old German scholar who <clears throat> held the Scripture high at the beginning of the 20th century, Adolf Schlatter comments, Jesus saw his entire calling, life calling in the Scripture. It was not marginal, but absolutely central to his life. His whole will was consumed to do this, to do what each commandment commanded. And then he says, here is the one man the first in history, who not only knew the Word, but did it. That is Jesus. And correspondingly, because that's how Jesus held the Scriptures when He is uh, in those repeated challenges, 
with the religious authorities, he quotes the Old Covenant Scriptures, the Old Testament, as the final authority. He says to them in argument, and this ends it, have you never read? Have you not read? What did Moses command you? So that's how Jesus regarded the Scriptures. And to all of this, Jesus' allusion to the Scripture, you have this idea. And, and John Wenham writes, the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, has few explicit quotations, but it is so replete with Old Testament language and ideas, it is impossible to say what may have been conscious allusion and what was not. In many passages, there is simply no way to distinguish between Jesus' conscious allusion to the Old Testament and his normal, habitual use of Old Testament words and thought patterns. The Holy Scriptures penetrated the warp and woof of Jesus' mind. He concludes, the total impression that these and many other illusions the gospel give us is the mind of Christ was saturated with the Old Testament. So, you take Psalm 1, Jesus was par excellence the man who meditated on the word day and night. Jesus was the one. You remember Luke 2 when he meets with the religious leaders and he's right at his bar mitzvah time 12, 13 years old, he amazed him and astonished them with the word. How do you think he got it? A computer chip planted up here, divinely planted? No, he got it by going to synagogue. He got it by family discussion in the home. He got it by reading so that when Jesus was 12 or 13, he had amazing knowledge of the Scripture. And when Jesus was began his ministry, he was so filled with the Scripture. The man of the book, the Word was his very life that he defeated Satan with three deft quotations from Deuteronomy. Remember? This is in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. That Jesus Christ, God incarnate, leaned on the sufficiency of Scripture in his hour of need. And indeed... His summary response to the tempter stands like a bookend to Moses' declaration, the Scriptures are your life. Because when he quoted Deuteronomy, he says it's your food. Man should not live in bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Moses says it's your life. Jesus says it's your food. Jesus, in a sense, is the second Moses who leads his people out of bondage of sin that says it everything. It is your life and it is your food. And that is what the New Testament scriptures tell us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God, speaking of sufficiency, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And Paul says to Timothy in 2.15, then do your best to present yourself as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So it is one thing to believe it's inerrant. It's another thing to believe that it is wholly sufficient. 
for everything in life. Now, there's a passage in Pilgrim's Progress where John Bunyan has his warrior heroes, Mr. Greatheart and Mr. Valiant for Truth, conversing during a, a pause in the battle. And, uh, you know, my, my imagination's kind of been informed by the Lord of the Rings. And so I see them, I almost see them dressed like Boromir and Aragorn, you know, a couple of machos and they're chests are heaving, they're sitting down, they're sweating, they've got their swords, and uh, as they do that, after a moment, Mr. Greatheart gestures approvingly to Mr. Valiant for truth, and he says, thou hast worthily behaved thyself, let me see thy sword. So he showed it to him, and when he had taken it into his hand and looked thereon a while, he said, ha! It is a right Jerusalem blade. Let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it, and he may venture upon an angel. Its edges will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. Reference to Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, about the Word of God being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, you know, dividing everything. And it will, because it cut through the hard, hard shells of our souls, didn't it? And it'll cut through anybody, anytime the Spirit wills it. It is so important, that uh, potent, that it'll, it'll pierce anyone. That's what happened to me when I was 13 years old with the King James of Romans 10, 9, and 10. That's what happened. That's what happened to you. Well, let me say, there can be no commitment in a church to Scripture apart from the highest view of Scripture. And here's what I want you to take away, that you have to believe that the Scripture is wholly inerrant, totally sufficient, and massively potent. Wholly inerrant, totally sufficient, and massively potent. Now, assuming that churches like this, or, or that look like this anyway, churches that have Bible in their name, or Baptist in their name, or some other thing that would make you think they're committed to the Bible, a disconcerting question arises. Why the increasing instances of disexposition in so many Bible-believing pulpits. Why? Let me answer it uh, beginning with this. I think that some Bible-wielding preachers who hold the Bible like this clutch it to their text and say, blessed Word of God, really do not believe in the sufficiency and potency of God's Word. They don't really believe it. Now, here's what I think. I think they think they believe it, but they really do not believe what they suppose they believe. And what they need to do is believe what they believe, not just believe that they believe it. I think it's the heart of the problem. And if you grow up in a Bible-believing culture and you get called to ministry 
you can give a mindless assent to the authority of Scripture because it's cultural expectation. Yeah, I believe it's the Word of God. I believe it's the very Word of God. And glibly assent to that and not do it dishonestly, not consciously disbelieve in the sufficiency of Scripture, but not truly believe that it is wholly inerrant, totally sufficient, and massively potent. And I, 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 the best thing I can say that needs to happen is this, and I, it's, it's, an, it's an analogy that has some flaws, but you know how some of us, when we were five, six years old, were on our parents' knee at our bedside, and we, can, we asked Christ in our heart, and we confessed Him as Savior, and... Uh, and it didn't make a massive difference in our lives, you know, at that age. And we weren't, certainly weren't in a state of disbelieving. But then we were in a good church like this, and we went to junior high camp, and we heard the gospel clearly, and all of a sudden it just came alive because we came to believe what we believed. And Christ was in our heart. And I think that there are preachers that need to invite the Bible into their hearts, so to speak, using the analogy. Get it? Where you really believe it. You don't say you believe it. You don't bow to someone else. You believe it with all your heart. I think that is the most important thing, is to really believe what we believe. Now, there's another possibility about this disexposition, and that is that some preachers do not believe that the bare Word of God will connect. Uh, and they know that their, their, their people will connect with stories of interdirected subjective experience. Let me explain. I can be preaching and I can be going through a text like Second Corinthians. You know, it's got a lot of stuff in it and I'm explaining it gets a little restless out there. Here's some coughing, you know, and stuff like this. And all I have to do is stop and say, you know, last week, let me tell you what happened to me. And I tell about an experience that I had, and all of a sudden, it gets absolutely silent. I mean, the baby stopped crying. They want to know how I felt. <laughs> You know, I know how to get my congregation even quieter is to tell them about my dog. I had the greatest preacher's dog that you could imagine. He was a big golden retriever, outsized retriever. His name was Sunday, great name for my dog. And, and I could put a, a, a cup of coffee on his rear, and he would hold it for me. He went swimming with me. I mean, he was, and you know, I'm telling you, you can have the worst day and you come back in and there's your dog looking up at you like you're God. I mean, this is, this is a wonderful thing. I love that dog. And I was younger then and I took him out to go for a jog. And you know, my dog couldn't get in the car. And I took him to the vet. He was just three years old. He had a raging case of leukemia. And I walked out of the vet carrying his collar because Sunday had to be put down. I'm telling you, I can tell that story. If I tell it right, 
I can have all kinds of tears in the congregation. And when I get done, there's going to be someone who says to me, Pastor, that is the most wonderful sermon that you've ever preached in all of your life. And it's about my dog. You see, that's a very seductive thing. Because we like to have things get quiet. We like to have people listen. We like to feel that they're engaged. So what happens is you start telling more and more interdirected stories. You lace it with bits of humor, a little bit of the Bible, and you have people telling you every week that's the best sermon they ever heard. That is seductive. And it's not the Word of God. Now, believe me, we need to tell interdirected. What did I do for 30 minutes Last night when I started, that was interdirected story. But believe me, I don't do that every week. But there are times for it. But it can be very seductive. And so you stop preaching the Word. And then the other possibility of why there's so much disexposition today in Bible-believing pulpits is they just really don't believe that a 2,000 or 3,000-year-old Word will connect that you can't bring the horizons together. And so preachers lose their nerve. Well, among other things, they need to remember that God is the author of Scripture, and God had a future audience. He had you in mind when He caused the Scripture to be written. Scott Hafeman gave it a, a very scholarly uh, uh, explanation when he said, the very fact that God has chosen to reveal himself in a space and time-bound collection of writings, the Bible, means that cross-cultural, cross-linguistic, and cross-temporal communication is possible. And then I'll just, I'll just say this, then one other reason maybe it doesn't happen is that, that a lot of Bible-believing preachers do not believe that biblical exposition because it's simply too much work. And I'm going to tell you this. You and I both had Bob Thomas for Greek. That's the hardest class I ever took in all my life, and he's shaking his head too. I mean, he killed us. I mean, he worked us. And I remember having a student who was in second-year Greek with me who went through all of those things together, about six years out of seminary, I ran across him. He said, do you use your Greek anymore? I said, yeah, I, I do every week. You know, I go into, he said, not me. He said, it isn't worth the work. The payoff isn't that good. Well, today he preaches uh, bromides and psychological sermons. He does not preach the Word of God because it's just too much work. You've got to believe that it's holy and errant, totally sufficient and massively potent. Do you believe that? If you don't, you need to invite the Bible into your heart. <laughs> then let me just say this, and you're, you're going to find this very interesting. As a young preacher, I would often hear other people say, they'd be speaking about a town, an unknown town, an unnamed town, and they'd be talking about the churches. And they'd be talking about maybe a charismatic church over here and a Bible church over here or uh, another church. And they would say, they would say about the, uh, the charismatic church, they'd say, they've got the spirit and what they need is more of the Bible. And then they would say about the Bible church, what they have is the Bible and what they need is more of the spirit. And I used to kind of nod to myself. Well, that makes sense. When I hear that today... I 
have a massive not go off in my mind because you cannot separate the Word and the Spirit. They're inseparable. And let me give you the reason for this. The Hebrew ruach and the Greek pneuma can mean wind or breath or spirit. And in many biblical contexts, the Spirit of God can well be translated the breath of God. So that in biblical thought, the Spirit of God is as closely connected to the Word of God as breath is connected to speech. Now, it's not just me saying that. Let me quote J.I. Packer. God's Word and God's Spirit are parallel figures. God's Word is His almighty speech. God's Spirit is His almighty breath. That the Spirit and the Word are inseparable. They work together. And you see it right in the beginning of Genesis where you have the Ruach, the Spirit, the breath, and God speaking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit, read breath, Ruach, of God was hovering over the waters. And what happened? God said, He spoke, let there be light, and there was light. That dynamic connection between word and spirit is often missed. But let me tell you, the psalmist didn't miss it. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. They go together. And uh, when Jesus began his ministry, he said, this is uh, Isaiah 61.1 quoted in Luke 4.18, the spirit, the breath of the sovereign God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. So the logic is this is that where the Word of God is, there the Spirit or breath of God is also, for one's Word cannot be separated from one's Spirit. You know where this is going. If you want to have the Holy Spirit, you've got to have the Word. Um, Listen to Jesus in the New Testament. John 3.34, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Words and spirit. And of course, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Theopneustos, the Word and God's breath. Uh, My friend John Woodhouse concludes, precisely for this reason, Scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, It is in the Word that God Himself speaks today. Therefore, the surest way to recover the living Word of God is to recover preaching that truly expounds the Scriptures. When the Word of God is expounded, the Spirit speaks. Exposition looses the manifold work of the Holy Spirit because Spirit and Word are inseparable. If you don't have the Word, you don't have the Spirit. That's massively important to understand. I'll just uh, briefly give you some other ones lest I wear you out. The other is that apostolic preaching was expositional. The classic text is in 1 Timothy 4, 
verse 13, the landmark text of defining uh, the worship of the church as exposition in Paul's instructions to Timothy. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. So guess what the apostolic church did? It read the Word, and it preached the Word that had been read. Actually, it read, according to the apostolic constitutions, the Old Testament, then the New Testament, and with the time that was remaining, the Word of God was preached. That's what happened in the New Testament. According to Paul's directive here to Timothy, if you're reading it carefully, the reading of Scripture was to followed by Timothy's attention to doctrinal preaching, exhortation, and to teaching. That is to Paraclesis and to Doskaleia. John Stott who many of us look to as a model expositor in our time, recently gone to be with the Lord, author of so many commentaries, says, it was taken for granted from the beginning that Christian preaching would be expository preaching. That is, that all Christian instruction, exhortation, we drawn out of the passage has been read, that biblical exposition was the apostolic norm. Therefore, any other kind of preaching is an aberration from the apostolic practice. So to be New Testament is to be expository, open the Word. And then I'll just say briefly, the other great argument is that Reformation preaching was expositional. It brought a revival of exposition. You know, this is a Spurgeon pulpit, right? Sits right in the middle. Well, you know what happened at the time of Martin Luther? The pulpit was taken from the side and installed back in the center of the church. And Luther himself, his 50 volumes bear monumental testimony to his commitment to the Word. Um, he said at one time uh, when the Word was preached, Yes, I hear the sermon, but who's speaking, says Luther, the minister? No, indeed. You do not hear the minister. True, the voice is his, but my God is speaking the Word when he preaches or speaks. And likewise with the great John Calvin, who said we ought to regard the Word of God as written as if written in the very blood of Christ. That's how he regarded it. That's what Calvin said. He revered it that way, and he lived it out. According to T.H.L. Parker, his translator and biography, on Sunday he always took the New Testament except for a few psalms on Sunday afternoon. During the week it was always the Old Testament. He took five years to complete the book of Acts. He preached 46 sermons on Thessalonians, 186 on Corinthians, 86 on the pastorals, 43 on Galatians, 48 on Ephesians. He spent five years on his harmony of the Gospels, and that was just his Sunday morning work. During the weekdays in those five years, he preached 159 sermons on Job, 200 on Deuteronomy, 353 on Isaiah, and 123 on Genesis, all because of what he believed about Scripture. And he says, you, we must not pick and call the Scriptures to please our fancy, but receive the whole without exception. Lectio continua, preach what comes, always getting surprised, right, Pastor? Always getting a text saying, what am I going to do with it? And then finding out it's one of the most wonderful texts we've ever ever examined. That is the way to do it. Now, of course, it can invite 
abuse where people think because they're preaching it is the very Word of God. But, brothers and sisters, it is gloriously true when the pastor does prayerful, faithful exposition in so much as he is true to God's Word, God speaks, and very often it is the very Word of God, and he fulfills Peter's charge, 1 Peter 4.11, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. So I want to say for these substantial, substantial, huge reasons, biblical exposition, opening the Word of God in its context and preaching to the people needs to be the regular diet of the church. The Scripture's own testimony that it is wholly inerrant, totally sufficient, massively potent. That reason alone. Secondly, because you cannot separate the Spirit and the Word. If you want the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you have to have the ministry of the Word. After all, the Holy Spirit authored the Word. Thirdly, because apostolic preaching was expositional. They read the text and then explained the text. Fourthly, because the Reformation preaching and thus the Protestant tradition was fed on exposition, for those reasons it has to be the regular diet of the church. So, count yourselves blessed that you're in a place where you're fed. And I concur with this very in-your-face declaration by Dr. David Bast. The nature of preaching is plainly indicated. There are not, strictly speaking, several kinds of preaching, topical, expository, textual, or many kinds of sermons such as doctrinal, lectionary, life situation, relational. There is only one expositional the only kind of preaching worthy of the name is that in which the truth of the Scripture is explained and applied to the lives of hearers. The task of preaching is clearly defined. The single most important thing the preacher must say to himself each week as he contemplates the sermon lying in front of him is, what am I supposed to be doing? And the single most specific answer he must repeat is, I'm supposed to explain and apply the Scripture. What we need most of all is a commitment to the biblical text. We must not be afraid of the text as if it might spoil our sermon. Let us study it until we understand and preach what it says instead of shrinking from it because it doesn't say what we want it to say or says more than we want it to say. Let us preach the text, not the idea that brought us to the text. Now, I've been kind of heavy, you know. Let me just, uh, in closing, give you a few pluses of, of what happens when the Word is opened. Um, one is, is that when you have a commitment to going through the Scriptures, uh, the preacher would preach texts that he would have avoided if possible. So he'll preach the whole counsel of God to you. You know, there's, there's things you just wouldn't touch. Uh, when I preached through Joshua, I had to deal with the divinely ordained 
genocide of AI. Try that one on. Especially in a, it, with the Marcionite tendencies of many evangelicals to kind of stay away from the Old Testament as crude and barbaric. And I had to deal with all that, that uh, 19th and 20th century rejection of the Old Testament. But my lesson for my people, God's glory and honor outweigh all human life and all creation. And if we don't like this, it's because our world has trained us to see man as the measure of all things. We must fix our hearts on this reality. God's holiness is more important than man's life. Now, I had to deal with uh, the fact that in Genesis 15, it says that uh, the judgment was going to be withheld until the cup of the Amorites were full, and these were the Amorites, and it was 500 years later. So, I, there were some things, and the fact that it was a, excuse me, a phallic worship and child sacrifice. Uh, when I preached on 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, across from Wheaton College, I preached on, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. And uh, that was an interesting Sunday. Uh, a second plus, an added plus of sequential exposition is you never have to fret, Pastor, about what you're going to preach on Sunday morning. You know what you're going to have to preach on. Uh, never have the Saturday night agony of Charles Spurgeon. Here's his pulpit. Do you know what this old guy would do? He would wander around on Saturday night. He called his wife Mother for some reason. And he would say, Mother, I have no text. What am I to do? And... Um, you know, somehow during the night, he would get his text, and he'd get up and he'd give this incredible oration on Sunday morning. And uh, I have to say that if you're a pastor and you think you can get away with that, just remember you can't do Saturday night specials because Spurgeon was a genius and you're not. <laughs> and then it, it aids your and the congregation's growth as a theologian. This is a theologian. I'm a theologian. Your staff's a theologian. And you're all theologians. Students of God, right? You're all the theologians. But by plowing new ground, you continually grow week after week and year after year, and your theological growth isn't in the cold, atemporal categories of systematics, but it's out of the living polychrome texture of God's Word that infuses your soul, and you grow like crazy. And, and the expository preacher gets better with time because he knows more of the Word of God, becomes a better theologian, applies it to his life, grows in the Lord, and teaches his people so that he'll be better at 60 than he is at 50, and maybe better at 70 if he's not senile, like me. Um, and it can go on so that while Michael Jordan's way over the hill, you're getting better and better. And, uh, well, I could go on. Uh, but it gives you the confidence that when you preach, when you've done your work, to say, thus saith the Lord. Uh, this is a matter, as I said, it really is of life and death. I don't say it with a set jaw. I say it with all truth. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season, brother. Rebuke, teach, exhort.
Amen.